Welcome back. Feels like it has been a while since I got to do one of these. I've been very busy with the play that I'm doing this July in the new theatre. 4th to the 8th of July, waiting for the offo. Be there or be square. Uh, the link for tickets is in the description. Saturday night sold out. Friday night, still a few left during the week. You can definitely get in, but unfortunately that's kind of distracted from the podcasting and essays a little bit and slowed me down, but we should be back in business now. This podcast I recorded recently with Eric Orwell. Uh, Eric has the YouTube channel Arval and the Understanding Plato uh, YouTube channel where he does interviews with Keith Woods. Um, does a lot of debates as well with popular YouTubers on Christianity and Platonism. And in this podcast, we're talking about the meaning crisis and Plato, about how the loss of a meaningful worldview in the Christian worldview resulted in the meaning crisis and how re-understanding key Platonic ideas can help us navigate our way out of the meaning crisis as individuals and probably as a larger culture. So a bit philosophical in this one, but also quite hopeful and very insightful into the problems that are plaguing our culture and our individual lives, really. I've been expanding the YouTube channel a lot more, getting into more videos and hoping to produce some other long-form videos, just solo ones talking about the attention economy, human autonomy, and generally how you can fulfill your potential in the digital age when it seems like everything is trying to distract us and hold us back, which is not cool, man. So hopefully that will be of some use to people. Lots of exciting things coming up. Um, my recommendation, as always, is to subscribe on the Substack where you can get the essays and podcasts weekly just sent out to your inbox. Uh, make sure to star it so it doesn't get put into your trash because Google doesn't like it for some reason. But uh, without further ado, I'll get out of the way and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. Thank you for joining me today, Eric, and making time to have this conversation about Platonism. I'm a big fan of your work now. I've been watching your videos, mainly on the Platonism stuff, a couple of debates as well, and very refreshing to hear somebody with such a detailed knowledge of Platonism. And something that I was wondering about listening was, where do you see the value of Platonism now? And I was thinking of John Verbeke's meaning crisis, the rise of nihilism, alienation, the pseudo-religious cults kind of cropping up and the slightly eccentric environment of the 21st century. How do you see Platonism fitting into that? Does the meaning crisis, is it important for you in understanding Platonism? Yeah, I think it's a very real problem. Like people don't have the tools to interpret like the place of human life in the cosmos, you know, ultimate significance, morals. Um, it, a lot of that can simply be traced to the collapse of mainstream Christianity I mean, this was like the basic operating system of our whole civilization for thousands of years. So when that collapses, it's understandable we're going to have this void. Now, I think Platonism is uniquely situated to address this because a lot of what allowed Christianity to operate as that foundation for our civilization was itself based in Platonism. And what people went away from in organized religion, the dogmatism, 
the kind of anachronistic cosmology, um, not squaring with science and stuff. Like Platonism doesn't have those same problems, but it has all of the good philosophical stuff that allowed Christianity to help us make uh, meaning out of our lives. So you kind of see similarly like the start of the whole thing, the kind of death of God. I know you had the recent debate on Nietzsche with uh, Uber Boyo and that kind of beginning of the Enlightenment creating this divide between the religious world and the scientific world and that that's just been played out and now we're kind of stuck between the two. It's almost like to believe religion, you just have to be this kind of fundamentalist, creed-based, you're just kind of in a group um, or else you're a scientific materialist, which is kind of hard to square with being a human being um, who right. is conscious and experiences things. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you see, so then, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think Platonism is doing a lot of the intellectual lifting in Christianity to a certain extent? Like, is it at least yeah. in the beginning, um, do you think it's better for making the argument for Christianity? Better to use Platonism to make the argument for Christianity or that uh, Platonism is like... Yeah, I mean, Platonist metaphysics can justify um, can justify more easily with a scientific framework than, say, Christian metaphysics. Or oh, that yes. the Platonist metaphysics can justify the Christian metaphysics. Both, yeah, both are true. The more I look into it, the more it seems that both Judaism and Christianity are heavily based on Platonism. So uh, one hypothesis that I've looked into by Russell Gmerkin is the idea that when the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament uh, occurred in Alexandria, these were Hellenistic Jews who were familiar with the legal and philosophical writings of the Greeks. They had access to the Library of Alexandria, of course. So Gmerkin's thesis is that they actually took from Greek legal theory, especially Plato, in like compiling and codifying the Old Testament. And it is possible that that's the case. We don't have older uh, records of the Jewish scriptures than that kind of third century uh, BC period. So this is potentially a direct Platonic influence on the Old Testament in the first place. And then, of course, around the time of Christ, you have Philo of Alexandria, who is a Platonizing Jew who interprets the symbolism and mythology of the Old Testament explicitly in terms of a Platonic metaphysics. Um, you know, potentially, Jesus himself could have met Philo of Alexandria because Jesus, from the ages of, I think it's like two to. 10 or something along that those lines uh, went to Egypt to uh, escape that persecution from Herod. So uh, yeah, there may be have, there may have been a direct influence on Jesus Christ from Platonism. I mean, even if you believe he's the son of God, uh, he learned language, he learned culture from those around him and Platonism and these kind of mystery cults were all around the Essenes, one branch of Judaism uh, around at that time, had leanings towards, you know, Platonic metaphysics, this kind of mysticism. Uh, beyond that, the church fathers, many of the church fathers were Platonists. You know, Augustine was basically Yeah, I was going to say Augustine, to be honest, that right. he really makes that 
for me, I suppose having been, he's the church father that I'm most familiar with, um, is Augustine and kind of combining that Neoplatonic framework with Christianity. Um, that was part yeah. of Verveke's argument was that the Neoplatonists provided, he talks about in the meaning crisis that the loss of three orders, the loss of the narrative order, the nomological order, um, and the normative order that all come from. And he looked at Neoplatonism as providing that normative order. And that Augustine kind of said, Christianity provides the narrative order. And if you put these two together, you have something that he obviously took from Aristotle as well, the conformity theory and how we can actually connect to reality for this nomological order. But I, I wonder, I suppose, so in terms of rebuilding the three orders, like overcoming the meaning crisis, um, do you think it's possible for modern people to re-enter you know, are they re-entering Christianity? Are they re-entering Neoplatonism? Or is this a new thing entirely? Do you see it as like going back or like, I know people talk about the rewilding of Christianity and like the bush soul of Christianity and this kind of change that's going on. I wonder how you see that. Right, yeah. I consider myself a Christian um, and I think there is room for a kind of revival of Christianity, just openly acknowledging these influences and reconsidering some of the dogmatism in Christian theology and things along those lines. In the past, I've identified as a perennialist. You know, Plato didn't claim to invent his doctrines. Pythagoras, who Plato largely follows, didn't claim to invent his, his doctrines. He got them from the Egyptian priests, from the Chaldean um, priesthood, from all these various mystery schools that were operating, it seems like the core of Platonism is a very, very ancient kind of metaphysics. And it's unclear exactly where it came from. I mean, there was some syncretism of existing spiritual strains. It seems clear that like the Up uh, Upanishadic philosophy was influential on the Persians and through the Persians, uh, the, you know, Mesopotamian sphere, ultimately, it, it did get to Greece. I think you can see that in a figure like Parmenides pretty easily. Um, so if we acknowledge that Christianity uh, is not simply like taking off from Judaism, but there is this like world historical mythic force that was concentrated into Christianity, then the character of that new Christianity may be a little bit more, you know, open-minded, compatible with science. Um, I think the, the problem really comes down to people having uh, prejudice that the views that they're used to coming from their preferred sources of authority are just like true. And if you can like affect that kind of moral shift and realize like, I'm actually doing something wrong when I like, blanket statement reject all of these other traditions around the world and say mine is the only true one it's not that you know you want to reject the idea that you can reach truth and like defend that truth that you find but i think it's you know returning to a socratic method returning to like the way that the ancients actually assimilated this perennial tradition um can inform like what to do with the christian symbology so I think it's clear that like historical Christianity has committed crimes. It's, you know, been guilty of, uh, of social harms. Um, the same is true of every faith. And I think we kind of just need to get over 
those attachments at some level without destroying the symbols, without throwing it all away. You know, like we saw what was wrong in Christianity and we just threw it out. And I think that synthesis can be arrived at and a new way of interfacing with the symbols can be arrived at, especially through Platonism, just because Plato's the right figure in time to assimilate that ancient tradition. He's there in the zeitgeist where these symbols were cropping up in Judea. Um, so yeah, I do think Platonism can be used to revive Christianity and tie us back into like a comprehensive scientific metaphysics. Yeah, there's so much there, man. A kind of golden thread idea as well that I think is really meaningful. Um, something I suppose for me is that I was born in a secular family, so I was raised without any religion as an atheist, essentially. Probably an anti-theist would be more accurate because the prevailing attitude was that religious people were somehow delusional or that there was this kind of um that yeah it was a big fairy tale or a big con or like the institutions of religion had just pulled the wool over everybody's eyes of course that's a very alienating position because you're believing that everybody from the past essentially was somehow mentally lower than what we are now which is definitely not the case um so for me something getting over that arrogance i suppose which comes with being an atheist i think um that's built into it also allowed me to re-enter into the tradition of thinkers since say plato um which does i think follows on there is you could build connections between that tradition from say plato to plotinus to aristotle or to augustine to the early church fathers to see the influence there um but that that connection to the tradition is meaningful and that that justifies a certain way of life that's continuous intergenerationally whereas i think for modern people they're very alienated from their tradition they're very alienated from you know if you believe everybody in the past was you know out of their minds in a sense or doing these weird things then you're very isolated and you're kind of outside it so i think re-entering the tradition in that sense can be very meaningful and can help to kind of afford that more meaningful uh worldview um i know in your experience you were raised catholic so how how did you come to platonism um why did you end up there Right. I was raised sort of like half Catholic. My mom was Catholic and we didn't go to mass throughout my childhood. I, I was the one to ask to go to mass because I was curious about these things just naturally, you know, as a kid thinking about like what happens when I die, you know, what is mm. like kind of the cause of the world in the first place and all of that. And I was really discouraged by the Catholic church because I would ask the priests like, philosophical type questions about these things and the response would just be like you can't know god you know all we have is you know revelation and what uh, tradition has given us through the church and i just felt like so i have no place in this it's just i'm a passive receptacle here um so i built like animosity up against uh organized christianity even as a kid and i became an atheist for a while and um, really went back and forth between atheism and Christianity for some time uh, before I started getting into the philosophical tradition. Uh, I think the first like serious philosopher I read, and honestly, I don't even want to call him a serious philosopher, but at the time I thought he was a serious philosopher, Nietzsche. Um, it was in a lot of ways responsible for like shifting my perspective and like forcing me into a hard reset and then I got into Schopenhauer and Plato simultaneously. And since then, like these two philosophers have really been 
my favorite source to go back to. You know, Schopenhauer has his flaws, um, but he does have this kind of practical wisdom and this very, like, common sense understanding of things that just brings a clarity. So I recognized that intuitively. It was like when I was a kid asking the priest about these questions of, like, ultimate reality and stuff, I, I had the belief that we can just talk about these things with common sense. We do have this understanding. It's kind of a Gnostic impulse, I guess, that I've always had. And I see that in Schopenhauer. And then, uh, you know, I started reading Plato, but I didn't really put it all together. It seemed like Plato was doing something more pedagogical, something like as an exercise. Um, and it was only much later that I kind of realized that like Schopenhauer and, and Plato are both addressing this same, like very deep and very detailed metaphysical system you know after getting into schopenhauer and and uh plato at first i started into more like modern physics theories and like people like chris langan with the cognitive theoretic model of the universe i was really interested in his thought and uh you know i was looking more to like the recent past of our intellectual history to try try to make sense of the world and like answer those questions that i had when i was a kid and uh I would occasionally like dip back into Plato uh, and like every time I was just seeing more and more and more in the dialogues until like in the last few years, I've started my reading groups and we're going in detail and we're reading the Neopl uh, Neoplatonic commentators. And I've basically come to the conclusion that like we've hardly moved past Plato. Like we really have not developed in philosophical terms past Plato very much at all. Um, so that's kind of my journey to be becoming explicitly a Platonist. I think we've devolved past him a couple of times, to be honest, that there's something that I noticed a lot, uh, was that the, yeah, there's a lot that missed. When I studied Plato in academic philosophy for my BA, they taught us in the way that you were supposed to abstract Plato's arguments. Like Plato has this theory of forms, you know, this is what he thinks X, Y, and Z. Um, and they didn't, we read the dialogues, but the dialogues were just presented as kind of of what he actually thinks like these are just a uh, big brain Plato arguing with himself and that's kind of all they are whereas recently I've gotten into DC Schindler's work and kind of third wave Platonism Gonzalez and um, Verveke talks about them a lot that this new interpretation of Plato as the, the the dialectic is or the dialogues are necessary to display the dialectic that's what the philosophy is in a sense he's he's exemplifying this process and that Plato isn't actually in it, right. and that Socrates is this kind of representation of the good, but that they're not just these propositional ideas. It's a transformative process. That's something that I think is really missing from philosophy and, well, from academic philosophy and also from for religion, obviously, because atheists, atheist materials look at religions as systems of propositions, that these are truth claims about the world, but... They're also engines of transformation. They're also meant to be something that you go into to transform, to see the truth. And I think that's something that's so core to Platonism. You have to undergo a personal transformation, i.e. the cave or something like that. Um, what do you think about that element of it? How, how important yeah. is that for you? Yeah, absolutely. The kind of like trans-propositional, uh, going beyond discursive reason is essential and it's what plato is constantly pointing us to you know like socrates displays not necessarily the best 
um, logical argumentation in the dialogues even. You know, Parmenides seems to outclass him um, in the Parmenides. Or maybe it's Zeno. Who does uh, Socrates argue with before Parmenides goes into his thing? May have been Zeno. He's arguing with Zeno, isn't he, about yeah. Zeno's defending Parmenides. Right. But Parmenides kind of smokes him. Yeah. The old, <laughs> and then the, the, Eliadic, the Eliadic stranger also kind of transcends Socrates, uh, Socrates to some extent in that like explicit logical classification that is an important part of the dialectical method but you know Socrates the way he engages with the youth of Athens the way he like integrates what he's doing philosophically in the holistic context of like the fate of Athens the fate of this whole organic unity that he's a part of and you know you get that sense that there is that care and what we're doing with philosophy is not simply like categorizing and classifying the things around us or these forms. You know, people think of Plato as a rationalist because he talks about this realm of forms. Like, okay, so what? There's like triangles floating out there somewhere. And Plato's like a big nerd thinking about these uh, mathematical shapes and stuff. But really, like, that's not the end of it. The realm of forms also people think of in a very abstract way, in the same way that we would think of the problem of universals. It's like, okay, so you're dealing with redness, you're dealing with these sorts of things, but it's more than that. And the realm of forms for Plato does have life. It does have, like, it affects us. It, it interacts with us. These archetypes are structuring the world around us, and you can't know them through discursive reason. You can't grasp the essence of things through discursive reason. Iamblichus in on the general science of mathematics, talking about the divided line, you know, the different kind of epistemological faculties that we have, says dianoia, in some sense, runs through the reason it's called dianoia through thinking is that it runs through all of the faculties. So there is something about dialectics discussion, logos, that in a way like permeates everything that we're doing, including that higher noesis, including that attempt to like grasp the ineffable, the structuring principles that obviously as structuring principles can't be encapsulated in any logic that we observe here, because it's the source of the logic that we observe here. But um, discursive reason, nevertheless, does like move us towards that summit and allows us to sort of get there, even though it itself doesn't carry that final, like, consummating union with the divine, ultimately, which is what Plato is pointing at. Um, the forms for Plato are intelligences as well as just, like, structuring principles. They're not inert. It's not just a triangle out there. You know, there's something living about it that impacts us. There's so many paths to go down there that I was just thinking of as you were speaking there, Eric. That's so, so important. Um, and the to zoom in on the kind of um, what you were saying about, it, it reminded me of Plato's Republic, which I reread recently, where he's making the metaphor of the constitution and character of how certain political constitutions create certain kinds of characters, but then those characters interact with the political constitution like there's this there's this interplay of personality but that the one or the good as a kind of the ineffable true reality but that that can that it's very much about becoming almost like you used archetypes like the Jungian example of this psychological wholeness moral improvement spiritual improvement 
and that that vision of a higher order principle of a, a superordinate vision of order is necessary to become wholer or to become more of a, a singular thing, to become more one, like in Neoplatonism, like Plotinus's whole kind of hierarchy of being that we traverse upwards and how much that's missing in a secular context is uh, very profound, I think. there's, It's a real loss. Um, and I wonder, yeah, I, do, I don't want to just throw you the big load of stuff, but um, in terms of the hierarchy of being and the ethics of kind of the Platonic philosophy, um, how much do you go into that in your work? Is it is it important for you? Yeah, and, you know, it's obviously paramount for Plato. He makes Socrates the central character and what was like realistically, historically, the exceptional property that Socrates had, his courage, his kindness, you know, his temperance, his justice, these virtues that he had. Um, and the Iamblichian curriculum uh, that I use in my reading group starts with the first Alcibiades looking at this character who, you know, has a lot of flaws. Socrates is showing him this method of looking at himself, turning his attention towards his own nature so that he can begin to reform himself. There is an element of like tragic fatalism that's that permeates through Plato, where like he chooses to illustrate this with the character of Alcibiades, knowing that Alcibiades goes on to do a lot of like degenerate stuff and make a lot of moral uh, errors in his life. But nevertheless, like, yeah, part of the purpose of dialectics maybe like the essential purpose of dialectics is to turn our attention through those scale, that scale of like faculties, capacities that we have, which ultimately converge on those like transcendent structuring principles. But the only way to get through them is to regulate the, the interactions of these different uh, psychological aspects that we have. Um, and ultimately, like, we have to be able to recognize that these structuring principles are not merely transcendent. They're also imminent to us and in our souls. You know, like the, the koinai, anoiai is the term for it in Stoicism, uh, or actually Neoplatonism. Spermatikos logos is the Stoic term for the kind of structuring principles of the world. These are reflected in our soul in Neoplatonism. Souls also reflect each other, and we reflect the being of all of the forms. So you can't know yourself without knowing this kind of abstract metaphysical system, but you're not going to know any of that unless first you regulate those lower aspects of the soul. This tragic fatalism comes up again because Plato believes that like in the world, when you have good meeting evil, evil wins. Like that's Plato's view. Evil is more powerful in a sense in this world than good is. Although essentially evil lacks power because to do an evil thing is to not know fundamentally what it is that you're affecting. We all will the good. That's a platonic, you know, doctrine. But mm -hmm. in terms of like the influence of bad things on good things, it is more or less always going to go in the direction against, uh, against the good but yeah so we have that like lower aspect of ourselves the appetitive nature that goes in many different directions and leads yes. us astray mm -hmm. and if we don't regulate that with this spirit thumos then uh, in the image of like its proper proportion that we know through noose through intellect 
then yeah in us too like the bad will prevail over the good that is so yeah because that i mean the levels of the self connecting to levels of reality like that verbeke talks about it where ontology and psychology are connected in neoplatonism that they're the same thing like right. to go through the levels of the self and integrate them is to connect to realer patterns in the world because you're becoming less self-deceptive so you're picking up on more real things that in turn you can use to create more inner harmony which you can use to pick up on realer patterns again and those even the platonic theory of the psyche with those three parts is so profound like that's the first theory of the psyche that's just ever ever created but it's so powerful um in terms of integrating the self or thoughts of integrating the self i was talking to dc schindler in a recent podcast where he described it as philosophical grace that it was like the the vision of the good through the beautiful leads to the true is something that the transcend or the transcendentals that we desire are what organize the inner conflict the three competing the man the lion the lower appetite of self and it's it's not this kind of encratic trying to push the parts of yourself into order where you have you know you're pursuing social goods too much and then you're pursuing appetite of ones and the man's just kind of stuck in between um that there's the vision of the good is what synchronizes and creates wholeness out of this kind of fragmented mess and and i don't see do you see is there a parallel there with Christianity, with the Christian notion of kind of grace? Or do you think this is fundamental to Platonism? I think there is a similar notion in, uh, in Christianity, especially Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, because like they take off in a big way from the writing of pseudo Dionysius, you know, like Thomas Aquinas uses Dionysius, Maximus, the confessor uses Dionysius. And w w I just recently got into Dionysius and it's, it reads to me like the kind of Advaita Vedanta doctrine, like Atman is Brahman. There is this core of all of our being that like, converges in this transcendent oneness that has to be behind all multiplicity. It, it seems like that's pretty explicit in uh, Dionysius. Uh, you know, he does like say that God is the being of our being, but like we're not the same as him. But then at other times, like he seems almost to point to like a Platinian notion of full henosis, that the goal is to like separate from the created world and, and reunite with the Godhead. Um, and so the way that manifests, though, is like fairly systematic with uh, Dionysius, because we do have a mechanism then for that unity permeating the multiplicity that we're engaged in, including in our own psyche. So there is something that's pulling us up, that upward tension pulling us up is there in Christianity very explicitly, probably because Proclus emphasized it so much. And Dionysius, as far as I can tell, really just took Proclus's system and like converted it into Christian language. There's even a reference, and I don't even know, is this a, a real historical figure, but Dionysius talks about his teacher, St. Herotheus, uh, who writes this supposed work, Elements of Divinity. It's like, okay, well, Proclus wrote Elements of Theology, and that's one of the most well-known writings in the Middle, uh, Middle Ages. Thomas Aquinas reads it. I think it was falsely attributed to Aristotle, in fact, for a while. Dionysius 
the you know historical figure behind that pseudonym probably knew uh, exactly where he was getting these ideas from. I mean, he's like one generation after Proclus, two generations. So uh, Proclus is always emphasizing the idea that like an ascent is actualized from above. The active participant is always the superior participant, right? So we have to make ourselves receptive to the influence of higher powers. That applies to like our attitude towards our teachers, very similar to like the way uh, Hindus think of the guru, like you view them as God because effectively, you know, they are the vehicle of transmission of the divine to you. Um, the same applies, you know, when dealing with higher ranks of spirits, things like that. In Catholicism, you really see that where like you pray to Mary, you pray for intercession from the saints, you know, you have all of these intermediaries. Proclus emphasizes this succession of intermediaries all conjoined by that common ray the serai that descends all the way from the one through all the ranks of forms and mathematicals and spiritual entities down to us and in one sense this ties us uh, to something transcending ourselves and way beyond ourselves in another sense though like we see that that unity permeating down is at the same time the being of our being most essential to us. So yes, this idea of grace really is, to, to my mind, as far as I can tell, the same as Proclus's idea of like the ascent via the upward tension. That's so fascinating. And there's something really um, that thinking about there in terms of the the Platonic ideal. Um, I know Ravaki talks about with Plotinus that in that time, they identified more as individuals than individuals, that they had this divine double. So an individual had essentially a higher spirit, like you talk about Socrates' daemon, um, that you weren't looked at as just this one single monad, um, that there was this higher version of you and that that was actually the true you. Your job was to, like what Plotinus talks about with the sculpture and the vision of the sculpture, that the sculpture works with their vision and the material until they become one. And so their individual's job is to reconnect with that higher part of themselves. And that journey is what actually makes you one, essentially. And it seems like the nominalism of today makes us think that the future self, the ideal future self, the best possible future self for you, which is a vision of the good, is somehow not real. But the weird thing is that that vision sets the normative constraints for how you behave in the present. It doesn't have the causal powers, so the future self isn't, you know, making right. you're not you're not making decisions for you. But as soon as you specify that higher order aim, in order to achieve it, you have to do certain things. You can't do other things. So, right, that's a really good argument for the reality of counterfactuals. Now that you say that, like it's not the way that David Lewis argues, and I think his arguments are great as well. But like counterfactuals have causal powers. So if they have causal powers, yeah. they must have some reality, right? It's constraint. Yeah, I mean, that was so much for Verveke's work in the dynamical systems theory that I read um, Alicia Uraro's book on it. Very difficult book, but um, kind of understanding that this, it's not like backwards causality that the vision of the future self is causing you, but that the aspirational self actually has the normative constraints that specify how you have to act in the present so the uh, the idea that that would be realer than who we are now 
actually makes a lot of sense and pragmatically is probably more effective in terms of your own actualization because I think a big step for people, you see this with people with ADHD, that ADHD seems to be a problem with not being able to manage yourself across time, not being able to take responsibility for the future. Like the, the, the issue is you, in the present, yeah, everything's there, but you can't string it together to organize your future and who you're going to be. Mm-hmm. So without that future self, we're actually very chaotic and disordered. And uh, it's like you, you almost can't see how you could do it another way. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're encouraged to have a very blank slate perspective, not just on human nature, but of our future. You know, self-actualization in a way is like an incoherent idea in the modern zeitgeist, because what exactly is it that you're actualizing? And why does that have value? You know, unless you're aiming at something, some archetypal self, divine double, some like perfect image that is there by nature of the laws of morality, you know, the laws of virtue there, unless there's an objective truth to like how you could be perfected and that precedes your actualization of it then how can you be aiming in any particular direction at all? Like if you're one of these people who's all about progress or like a transhumanist who like wants humanity to develop, like, okay, develop into what and why is it good? Because just change for the sake of change is obviously very destructive and nihilistic and could go anywhere. You know, you can change into a genocidal, uh, you know, dictator potentially. That's probably not a preferred direction. Um, so yeah, I, I'm. I believe that like when we're thinking about our future, we are not like projecting something into some like open field, open canvas of possibility. Mm-hmm. There are like definite attractor states that are out there built mm-hmm. into the laws of nature. Um, there is like a stable thing out there that I I think has as much reality as the reality that we have now. You know? Well, that's the, I think that's the platonic position, man. So much that that really that justifies that because the alternative that they aren't real, it doesn't well, it doesn't make sense of potential anyway. Even we talk about living up to your potential, and like it already implies a sort of hierarchy of actualization versus potential, which is very kind of Aristotelian. But the idea that we have to um, enact this future self, I. Peterson has one video where he talks about Carl Jung's theory that what catches your attention is your future self calling to you essentially through because we're drawn towards things that are going to develop us. Our attention functions by developing and develops by functioning. So his argument was that we're actually set up to see things that will bootstrap us to become better versions of ourselves. Um, if we're doing it properly, that's like, you know, on an, and I think so much of it comes down to attention, which you mentioned earlier, um, which is obviously a key topic for my research as well. And how through attention, through the lens of attention, materialism makes no sense because you can't see without values. You're valuing one thing over another. So by perceiving things, you're setting up a hierarchy of value from things that are most right. significant to least significant. And Verveke talks about that. He's like, to be a cognitive agent, you need an implicit structure of value. So we have this implicit structure of value for perception and for action. The idea that what we have could be perfected. I mean, obviously, there's a bad way and there's a good way. If it already we have a, you know, 
an attentional hierarchy of value. It does, I mean, it makes sense that there would be a, a good version of it and a bad version of it. I, I don't really um, see how you could argue against it. But Right. Yeah. yeah, we have certain given constraints, essentially, as the being that we are, at least as far as our soul is concerned. You know, this distinction between the essence of things and their energies, I found very helpful. You know, the essence is that structure of the whole, which in a sense must transcend time, at least for souls. Um, the idea that like we are in a continual process of flux and development, I think, can't ultimately account for that unity that holds it all together. Why can it be considered one thing? So in my perspective, you do need some level of monadic self, but like for Leibniz, each monad contains a reflection of all the other monads. So we're not like isolated in our individual self, but there, I think there must be that essence of the soul and the way that that essence of the soul works in my mind is like, it's this kind of crystalline structure outside of space time. It is your nature that like, if you were born in any like slightly different parallel universe or something like that, it would still structure what is in your capacity. You know, what, how can you energize is structured by that essence that, you know, can't be alienated because it's that thing that allows the oneness of all of your experience, you know, at a more mundane level, obviously we have a genome that conditions what's possible for us. Like, not everyone is going to be in the NBA. That's just how it is. So we have to attune to our essence and understand our essence, know ourselves in order to see what we can do. You know, that's, but that's a very radical idea these days because we think that essence is totally mutable. That is incredibly important in terms of the, the idea, the know thyself, like I love Verveke's line on that, which is that it's uh, know the principles that are guiding your actions that it's this, it's not an autobiography, it's more of an owner's manual, he says, which I thought was so interesting because we do have, when you were speaking there, it was reminding me of Carl Jung's idea of the shadow, that we have this potential self in that's hidden. As soon as we specify that we are something, we also specify that we're not something in the same sense. So we're right. continually, by being something, we we build up this opposite shadow, essentially, and that development takes place by dipping into that shadow self to reclaim the things that are within that that aren't is essentially conscious that we need to solve problems or to face the kind of um, the circumstances that are presented to us by the environment. Um, and uh, yeah, I wonder, do you see, it was something I was going to ask you about a minute ago, which is the connection between Carl Jung and Platonism, because Pierre Grimes talks about Jung in terms of that he uh He's obviously based on Hermetic philosophy, but he argues that Hermetic philosophy is just middle Platonism, that there was evidence that Hermes yeah. Trismegismus wasn't, you know, well, there was, they thought he was a contemporary of Moses or whatever, but that he was actually a second century, third century middle Platonist. So do you see, do you see Jung's theories as connecting to Plato? Um, oh, is, yeah. Is that something you're interested in? Yeah. I think Jung was a Platonist. I mean, his preferred philosophers as far as i'm aware was schopenhauer and schopenhauer is a platonist you know in the introduction to the world as will and representation he says like in this work i'm completing plato's system now ultimately i think schopenhauer is a de degeneration away from plato not an improvement um but 
yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the archetypes, the idea of these different levels of the self, uh, to me, that seems very clearly evident in uh, Plato himself. The idea of the shadow and integrating what we've, like, disfavored, because that's a very good point you're raising. Like, whenever we engage in some kind of, uh, you know, identity construction through our actions, we rationalize to ourselves, like, this is what I am and I'm not this. You know, I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. But in each one of those acts, we we are, like, disti distinguishing that kind of being and non-being. And the non-being is the different from something in the sophist. We have to, in order to like see the totality of ourselves and get back to that essence, we have to kind of retrace those steps. Like each time I've said, I'm not this, I've kind of like some aspect of myself is still attached to that non-being, is still kind of drawn down by that, that it's not an absence because the things that we've rejected maintain that kind of potential energy because they were all possible at at one point like the way that we could have been like if you end up having a certain political uh, value like there's easily a way of seeing your life go that you went the opposite way so they still have that potential to influence uh, what you may become so the idea that Jung has to integrate that shadow like I think is very powerful. We have these like latent energies in us in the realm of potential. And it makes sense that they would be unconscious because what is conscious is tied to what is formal, what is structured. What is unconscious is not fully formed. You know, I've been kind of having an insight lately, basically that like intelligence is just form. Right, the realm of forms is the same as the as noose, you know, the second hypostasis in Neoplatonism. Um, the formal principle is the principle of intelligence. Like it seems so simple, and it's like really at face value what Plato is saying, but applied to like Jungian psychology. Okay, so we have this like formal conscious aspect and this material potential, you know, probability spectrum aspect of ourselves that nevertheless is structured. Because if it was wholly unstructured, it would have no reality. Because, you know, the absence of form is like pure matter, and Neoplatonists say that pure matter doesn't exist. So no pure unconscious exists at a certain level. But, yeah, that shadow of the formal properties that we do experience has to be there, just like extrapolating the logic of Platonism. So I see Jung, like, as very compatible with platonic metaphysics yeah and also that he's aiming at oneness essentially in a very similar way to kind of um the platonic kind of yeah ideal of the one and yeah just on that idea of connecting intelligence and form i mean i understand that the in anything that's intelligible is a form that there's anything that we can grasp as one thing has that formal aspect so it's unsurprising do you see is there an aspect then of the mind as an an actualizer like the mind can i'm thinking about peterson's um making order out of chaos or habitable order out of chaos that there's this ability in the mind and through language i suppose to capture things to put them in concepts which are maybe to better to say to identify forms in things um and that we're kind of continually making that order in a world that's continually breaking down, which is the entropy and the pure potential, the formlessness, which is called matter in 
um, the platonic, uh, neoplatonic case, that that we're pitting ourselves against that entropy with our minds. That's kind of the mind and the languages. That's the sort of mission and Platonism that's underlying a lot of it, which sounds very Christian. I don't know that in terms of the logos of following the logos um, of making mm-hmm. that order out of chaos. I don't know what you think about that, but yeah, yeah, I think there's truth to it. I think it, you know, it's interesting you tie it to entropy. I think the dichotomy that we're dealing with is really like classical information versus quantum information. And there's a trade-off relationship. Classical information specifies states compared to other states. So you're saying like this and not this. Whereas quantum information characterizes that realm of potential and doesn't differentiate. So it remains in the superposition. It kind of calculates across all this probability space. So whenever we specify classical information, there's a corresponding loss in quantum information. The way that the world proceeds is characterized by a succession of classical states. Like you need the classical states in order to model the world as we see it. It's not purely quantum, right? Uh, Henry Stapp in his book, Quantum Theory and, and Free Will, says that like exactly what you said about like kind of constructing our, our values with our what we give attention to and also like constructing the world with our values because like what we attend to is contingent on those values. Stapp like traces that all the way down to the most fundamental like pro- measurement process in quantum mechanics and says that the way that it's modeled in the standard formalism, like the von Neumann formalism, there are these two discrete processes, like process one and process two. There's the propagation of the wave function and then there's the collapse event and the only way to model that appropriately is with a query that's put into the system. So something outside of the system asks, is there a particle here? And it's that question that determines for Henry Stapp, or actually a succession of questions that are kind of stacked atemporally. I don't fully understand. I'm not a physicist, but you know, it's a, it connects to what you're saying. Uh, yeah, that question shapes what collapse actually does occur. So it is like attention or will in Schopenhauer's sense beyond time that ends up determining that classical state that we we experience. Now, you know, in, in that sense then, like the experience of continued time, the potency to shape the world in that way is always coming from that formal principle. It's adding form to matter. You see this probability field, you're always structuring it inevitably. So that's tied to the idea that there's some good in everything. So even though what we actualize may not end up to be good, the potential to do it, the power to do it, comes from this form dominating matter. And as far like form qua form is superior to matter qua matter. And so every instance of us forming the world, shaping the world in some sense is good because we're getting rid of some, you know, messy potential and instituting some concrete, you know, reality. Um, But yeah, like at a higher level though, we have to recognize that there's like multiple levels of matter. Like for Plotinus, there's like the substrate of the world itself. And then there's things that act as matter for higher formal principles. So in a sense, like bronze is matter to the statue. 
right? And even in the intelligible world, there's like the intelligible matter that acts as the substrate for the particular forms. Um, so we have to recognize what is that matter that our action is applied at. And I think there are multiple levels of the unstructured and the material, and then multiple levels of the formal that is ultimately always aimed at the good. Um, when we give our attention, like shaping the collapse of the wave function, or when we give our attention, motivating action at the level of our the perspectives we're taking, or at the level of the procedures that we're enacting, or at the level of the propositions, like we are, we're always constraining that probability space at multiple levels. And uh, yeah, so that's the thought. I love that it always ends up with quantum physics and then everybody's just kind of like, I don't know where. <laughs> I always end up there and I'm like, definitely something there, but I just, yeah. But on the, the young topic there, like that's so, um, talking about the kind of hierarchy of being of this, like actualizing up the kind of hierarchies where Plotinus talks about, you know, if you were, or for Vegas, sorry, talks about like if you were a human being living like a plant, you'd be a failed, debauched human being. Or if you're a human being living as a an animal, you'd be a, a failed, debauched human being. And that there's this kind of implicit ideal in each level of it that we've kind of been talking about the whole time. But that that um, in the hierarchy of being, then there's there's levels to it, and it's aspiration that takes us through these levels of being, and that it comes from attention. I mean, our Augustine defined lust i think as you know choosing a lower good over a higher good and it seems like everything you know the whole idea that everything has its time like you you can desire each thing everything's a good but there's an ordering to the goods there's a hierarchy of them that needs ultimately the good at, at the top the highest good that structures all the other goods which i think is augustine's pretty much definition of god as the absolute value that organizes all the relative values um and how to take that away, you're just going to end up with chaos. Like there's just, there's no other way of kind of doing it. And that's, I, I think the argument why the Christian story is so inevitable is that it sets up that hierarchy of being all the way from God all the way down and that there's no kind of, there isn't another game. Like either <laughs> it's that one or you break it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It goes back to like, Plato didn't invent these doctrines and we don't have to invent new doctrines. The old ones are perfectly fine. I mean, I think, yeah, we can update them and like inform modern scientific views with them. But I think, you know, sometime in the distant past, people hit on this necessity that there is one first principle of being and goodness. There has to be, otherwise the world cannot be made sense of. You know, Proclus and the element of theology says you can't have two first things because what are those two first things that we can label them both? They have something in common if we can talk about both of them and that commonality, like if they both are, for example, they part they both participate in being and you need that being above them with the good. If we have multiple goods, how do we determine that one thing is good? Well, unless there's a singular nature of goodness, we have ultimate relativism and the notion of good is meaningless. Unless there's a unity to goodness, there is no goodness, you know, because any individual act can be judged according to any standard and you can't have fixed standards unless you're dealing with one thing that you're, you're studying here. Like any variable in psychology 
you have to posit as this kind of essential thing in order to model it. Like, you know, openness and the big five, neuroticism, you know, whatever it is you're looking for, it has to have a fixed nature. It has to be one thing that you're tracking. Um, that's so I, yeah, there is no other way to do it. So that's why I've, you know, over the years after looking at the more modern stuff, I'm, I'm like, yeah, Plato had it all already. And we really don't have to innovate past him. And like enough people could benefit just from reading the dialogues that like, that's what I'm doing in my groups. We'll just read the dialogues and like refresh our memory on how all this started and how we used to think. It's so true. Like our, our relentless focus on innovation kind of takes away from the fact that a big part of this should be trying to understand the tradition more. And that that's actually okay. Like you don't have to invent a new system that fully explains everything. Like there's, you know, it's enough to understand Plato and to be able to actually, you know, situate yourself within that worldview that um, can be meaningful, I think, as well um, as right. affording us wisdom and virtue. There was something there that I wanted to jump on, which was the, the kind of conflict maybe between big B being and being as true reality. Um, like that the good is you can't add any adjectives to it or anything. It's, it's the thing above all, or it's not a thing. It's the, where the true reality that all things are situated within. Do you think that conflicts with the Christian account? I've heard such no. like yeah. different things. I really not, don't know. Like, not with pseudo Dionysius. I mean, if yeah, if you're in Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism, you embrace the teachings of Dionysius seemingly. And I mean, he makes it very explicit, like Godhead is not an existent thing in a way he's saying like Godhead doesn't being. exist because it's the principle of being. Um, so, you know, maybe there are Catholics out there who wouldn't accept that because Thomas Aquinas, the way he phrases it, he talks about God as like being itself, but there it's an analogical statement. It's not that like God simply is this property being that is distributed among all existing things it's that like the way that the being of things relates to like them as foundations god relates to you know being in general as that foundation so that's the analogy i think that aquinas is employing there because aquinas was a believer in like apophatic theology um, following the tradition via negativa of uh, Dionysius. So we can't directly predicate anything of Godhead, of that ultimate unity, even in Platonism, the one, the good. These are analogical labels. We only know what to call them mm -hmm. by seeing what is exemplary and superior in the world around us and in what we can grasp of the intelligibles but you know proclus mm -hmm. will say too we can't actually ascend beyond that i think the authentic like intellectual christian tradition fully recognizes that yeah because i think that's a big stumbling point a lot of the time is the kind of personal creator god idea of almost like a michelangelo type of you know guy in the sky um thing that stops i think yeah causes conflicts with the, the secular attitude of seeming almost a bit i don't know yeah just fantastical or something so I, i've heard it described in different ways do you think for aquinas it was a to do with aristotle a little bit because i know aristotle um, 
I don't know if this is correct actually, but his first principle is the kind of unmoved mover, the self thinking. And that's kind of in Platonism anyway, that, that wouldn't be the one. Would that be below the one because it can think itself? Um, right. Yeah. Aristotle's first principle seems to be the demiurge. Yes. Which... In Platonism. Yeah. Yeah. But that creates a very different, if that's the first principle, because Aristotle has then a kind of logically closed system. And do you think that's what kind of underlies a lot of the modern rationalism? I mean, DC Schindler's work is, has a really good point of like, you know, what's the rational argument for rationality? You can't give a rational argument for rationality that doesn't presuppose its validity. So it has to rest on something else, which in Platonism is the good. You know, that's what underlies the, our mind's ability to understand the world. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it is a problem and it does stem from Aristotle, but I, I wonder to what extent Aristotle was cloaking his Platonism. And I've even wondered, you know, why didn't Aristotle succeed Plato in the Academy? Why did Plato choose his nephew, Sisyphus? Um, maybe Plato and Aristotle recognized that it would be better if we had two different directions of focus that were like, in a sense, independent. This is, you know, Verbeke would uh, characterize that as opponent processing, right? So we have mm -hmm. that like starting from the intelligible and moving down to the sensible. And then we have starting from what's intelligible and ascending to the super intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, of course, both, you know, kind of go beyond that platonism in a sense starts from the sensible goes all the way to the top and back down but like that it, it, that focus on the sensible world and not looking at sensibles qua their instantiation of intelligibles but looking at sensibles qua sensibles like the, plato doesn't encourage that and that's not the focus of the pedagogy aristotle encourages that and without that empirical focus you know Western civilization probably wouldn't exist as we know it. It might, uh, classical Athens, you know, minus uh, Alexander's conquests might have turned out looking more like Egyptian civilization. If you just took a strict Platonism, you know, would they be inventing new mechanisms? I think, I think Plato was fully aware of that because in the Republic, he says the person who should be compelled to return back into the cave will see the shadows uh, 10,000 times better. So... Yeah, maybe, you know, was uh, the peripatetic school itself, uh, the Lyceum, like a, a, I don't know, some kind of conspiracy in a certain sense, a noble lie that, <laughs> yeah, you like know, a Plato came up ground with, with for Aristotle. Something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and it does seem to really root the kind of nominalist problem as well, or the empirical bend of the issues around um, just the the focus on what's intelligible to the eye or what can be seen rather than the bias against forms or against the type of uh, even the future self or the good and how that actually exists within a platonic framework. Anyway, Verbeke talks about that, like the whole right. in the scientific uh, ontology, which is that, you know, you know, on the one hand, it's all empirical and human beings have to do the work. But on the other hand, human beings are so unreliable that it has to be this kind of impersonal method that removes human beings. So you're like, how, how do you have both of those things at the same time if we're not capable somehow of perceiving these important patterns right i think yeah that's part of the dialectical method as well 
like at certain times, Socrates acts as if he knows certain things. At other times, he unknows them so that he can come to know them better, right? There, there has to be that process of unknowing, the kind of via negativa of Dionysius. And it's uh, an art that, yeah, we've kind of unconsciously practiced in some ways, like what was John Locke ultimately on about with his ideas of empiricism or Francis Bacon, you know, mm. did were they like true believing empiricists exclusively or did they see that we had to kind of unknow certain truths about the higher realm so that we could like get that shift in perspective and come to know the shadows a little bit better um yeah it's it's hard to tell and it's interesting also that a lot of these like anglo empiricist philosophers like they had a background in hermeticism they weren't ignorant to these platonic ideas and you even see like I think oblique references uh, to platonic themes in Locke, in David Hume, you know? So mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a deeper history behind the enlightenment that like, were these like just rationalists or empiricists alternatively kind of making a mistake being myopic or, mm -hmm. or was there like an awareness of the deeper unity behind both at some level? Maybe it was an unconscious level, but yeah, there too, we had this kind of opponent processing, rationalism, empiricism, and you need that bracketing in order, I think, to like explore both paths in, in their fullest. Mm -hmm. That's why like Plat Platonism can't be reduced into just one system. You, you need to be able to forget and revisit and come back. That process of forgetting mm -hmm. and recollecting is so important. Um, yeah, yeah, and that Socrates exemplifies that so well and that he ex exemplifies the good ultimately for plato and that it's kind of because like people talk about the socratic method and i know everybody he says like he doesn't actually have a method like he does the opposite thing at times all over the place the point is the kind of search for the truth um but that that you know within the kind of plato exemplifies that dramatically but the perfection of the drama is the philosophy almost it's a radically different yeah. kind of philosophy and, and pursuit of truth it's what gives the, the dialogues version. their beauty i think that mm. there is a deeper unity that's not obvious just like the good is the first principle of reality isn't obvious but it accounts for that that oneness that the whole work the organic unity the whole work has that confers that beauty um so where we see tensions it's there's often like a deeper thing going on Mm -hmm. yeah and hopefully i mean where where can people find your work eric where's best for them to go uh to learn more about this because i'm sure people will want to tuck into more platonism to get over the meaning crisis after this conversation yeah i hope so um so i do a podcast with keith woods understanding platonism and then i have my own youtube channel understanding plato um so that those are the two main uh platforms i need to post more on both of those but we're we're trying here. Of course, and uh, it's uh, it's difficult to keep it all going, but um, it's significant work, and hopefully we can chat again in the future because um, I, I really love your your insights here. Um, I, I found it super beneficial, so thanks for your time. Thank you very much. I checked out a few episodes of your podcast. I think uh, you do great work as well, so looking forward to more of it.